And the first Patreon series of the year has dropped. We're starting this year with a series from our reading group in our Discord, which everyone is invited to, called Confessions of a Union Buster. And this is led by our uh, admin in the server, Pat, who actually helps us facilitate the reading group. This preview is the first episode of the two-part series in this. And if you'd like the full thing, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. We genuinely appreciate it as an entirely listener-funded show. But otherwise, please enjoy this preview of the episode. And please join us in the reading group for the new series. I believe they're reading Hammer and Ho, which is a great book that everyone should check out. And I guess, uh, without further ado, solidarity forever. Well, this this brings up uh, my favorite tactic he used in this drive uh, near the end was... uh, It started with a joke from one of the supervisors uh, who was helping with the drive, a man named Tom Reaper. I think it's a fitting name because Tom Reaper was ripped. He was like the office jock. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And uh, jokingly, he suggested he would streak across the runway if his uh, employees, which, as described, were mostly women, they brought in their ballots torn up. And this was a very interesting tactic because unlike the NLRB where you go in and you vote yes or no, under the RLA, you you can only vote yes a no vote means you don't turn it back in the ballot. Yeah, it's such bullshit. Well, yeah, and and Marty thought about this, and he's like, well, you know, ballots get mailed out. They're going to be sitting on someone's table for two weeks. And in that two weeks, somebody might be like, you know, maybe the union is a good idea. And, you know, fill it out and send it in. So to him, a no vote is a ripped up ballot. So uh, what started as Tom Reaper's kind of joke uh, Marty was like, no, we should do this and expand it to the whole company or the whole or at least this whole uh, the whole office unit. So he did that and he ended and uh, he ended up getting about 400 of the 500 ballots uh, returned ripped up. So wow. like, this was super effective, actually. He was like, hey, ladies. What if this tasty piece of man meat ran down the runway if you tear up your ballots? And that that worked? I well, mean, like, people will do things for the meme, John. That, I know this very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, the way he describes it in the book is that basically that goofy bet kind of popped the atmosphere of tension that mm. had been built by the, you know, the clash of forces. And so... By doing that, it was basically a way to kind of deflate the the consciousness of of, of like class unity, class struggle of its existence in the mm-hmm. workplace by basically, oh, it's like, no, come on, we're all friends, right? You know what? Do we really want to be all agitated about all this union? Come on, we've all mm. been working here for together. We've been friends. Come on, let's just do it. Tom's going to run down the runway. It's going to be great. It's going to come on. <laughs> let's just have a good time and go back to how it was. You know how bosses do shit like that. That's like w- what this sort of thing, it, it seems like it was. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it was, he was a, um, it, th- that, that's another thing that comes up. He's kind of like a vibes engineer in that way. Mm-hmm. Very um, much so. And that's that's kind of how he that's one of the main tactics he he uses is kind of playing with the the tension and the atmosphere of the workplace to, you know, to push people one way or the other. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm looking at your notes here. Uh, there was approximately 500 eligible people to vote, which meant yes. that like 80 percent of people ripped up their ballots for the meme. Well, yeah. I mean, some of those people were probably already no votes, but yeah, mm-hmm. it was a big, big loss. Damn. How about instead of a union, we all do the Harlem shake? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, look, I agree. It sounds fucking ridiculous. but No, the more I think about it, the more it sounds like it would still probably work if you did it right. Yeah. Well, I mean, did he actually end up doing it? Yeah, he did. <laughs> yeah, they, they, took, they, they drove him out to the other side of this abandoned runway in only like a fur coat and some running shoes. He got out of the car, took off the fur coat, and he ran. Wow. It's so important for worker organizations to come up with the goofy, funny thing faster than the bosses can. <laughs> yeah. That, well, I mean, that's good advice. It, I think generally, though, it also speaks to. Because if we're going to, you know, we want to really get down into the brass tacks of like, what, what can we take from this and we mm-hmm. think about organizing today? Like, to me, the thing that stuck out about that is not that he was able to manipulate the vibe that way. Because if you get somebody who's a, a skilled operator, and and look, a lot of these union busters are scumbags, but the successful ones become successful for a reason. Like, they have a talent at their horrible terrorism that they do. Um, and so, you know, I, you can always, let, again, there's a reason that they suggest you don't file till you have 70% of the bargaining unit because there's a, an understanding that you're going to lose some people even if you've done a good job. But to me, one of the things that this says is it, it, it talks to me a lot about, like, that this was not a rank-and-file-led campaign uh, because it it really shows that, like, the uni- whatever level of unity that had been able to be built by the organizers was fragile enough that it could be busted by this. And now obviously that's always a risk. I don't want to, I'm not, I don't want to say that, you know, it's all, this is all because the organizers were terrible. It's not what, that's not what I'm saying, but like, or that it was like specifically organizer driven rather than rank and file driven. Right. But that's, that is how, you know, it, I do think that's one of the, the advantages of the really is what I'm really trying to hammer at, at here is that, I think one of the advantages of rank and file led campaigns and really empowering the people in the workplace, which is where we've seen with things like Starbucks Workers United's style of organizing and as well the UAWs in this this current stand up 2.0 campaign, when it's the workers in the shop themselves running the campaign, they're more invested in it. And because they know all the specificities of what they're doing and it's you you build a a, a tighter uh uh unity amongst workers by knowing that it's the people that have been along on the same line as you, you know, for the last 15 years or whatever, going through the same bullshit that they're the ones running the campaign, not somebody from an outside, from an outside group. Uh, and again, I'm, this is not me to say that there's anything wrong with outside union organizers. They do incredible work and they're vital to campaigns, but I do think that's one of this sort of tactic. One of the things that rank and file organizing can do is help, uh, hold off on this by building a stronger unity um, on, in your like bargaining unit. Yeah, definitely. Indeed. But after this campaign, Marty runs off on the the group he was with then, or he runs off of the company that he was with then to stay at uh, World Airways. However, he immediately fumbles this and gets fired. But like for <laughs> real, not like fired and then hired back the next day. He get he gets fired. Basically, he. Part of it was he uh, he he didn't get a first class on a flight, 
And so he uh, went up to one of the TWA. He went to the TWA lounge and was like, excuse me, do you know who I am? And uh, uh, one of the one of the executives at World was like, no, you can't do that. You're out, buddy. (laughs) Um, Wow, that's what it took. It took him being like, I'm big and important rather than, wow, what a line to draw. But uh, yeah, you know, he does a he kind of enters a period of doing little kind of like little hustles. So he first gets a counter organizing job at, you know, uh, some local restaurant chains and, you know, gets a few pretty easy wins. But after one of them, uh, the the head of the uh, the local of the union he just defeated approaches them and makes him an offer. So he was approached by the president of the hotel employees, restaurant employees, and bartenders international union, Local 28. You might recognize them as the here from before they joined with Unite to become Unite Here. Oh, okay. I was going to say that's an odious acronym, but they were just like, bartenders, it's not working. So you're just going to have to sit out on the acronym. Sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) But with no organizing experience and only counter-organizing experience... They made him an offer to become an organizer. And this is one of the slimy... This is honestly is one of the slimier parts of the book because they're like, okay, what do you want? And he told them, okay. Keep in mind, this is this is mid-1970s. He got 36 k a year plus expenses, benefits, and a new car paid for of his choice, which in his case, it was like, I believe it was a Lincoln. He mentions oh, that God. it was a Lincoln. Wow. Um, that's a that's actually a, probably a considerable sum of money. Yeah, but uh, he, you know, he got into it, but he quickly realized it was basically too much work for him. You know, <laughs> he realized that it's not about the the big shot run and gun that he was used to in union busting. He had a quote about it here. Oh yeah, I can I can read this. Uh, so the quote, uh, he he said quote. Local union work turned out to be far more tiresome, much less glorious than I had envisioned. Organizing was difficult and tedious, quite unromantic, end quote. Just like, yo, yeah, being an organizer is hard, and just going in there and fucking shit up is easy. Well, it's like, oh, boo-hoo, you finally got a job worth doing, and you didn't like it because it took effort. Like... What the fuck are you fucking crying about, you dumb baby? You have $36,000 a year in the mid-1970s and a new Which, Lincoln. I looked that up. That's like, depend. I mean, you don't, I don't know exactly which year in the 70s that is. Uh, and it does matter because, boy, does the economy go mm. through the fucking blender in the 70s in the U.S. Uh, but that's like 200 k a year mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. in today's money. But um. The I the thing I thought was also was kind of funny about his, the way he bounced off actual organizing because it was real work and not a bunch of bullshit is that this is like the same complaint that you see from a lot of uh, like petty bourgeois people who get involved very briefly in left wing organizing and then like the whole you have to do mass organizing which is a lot of just talking to people They're like this is boring where's the like exciting revolution stuff this sucks. This isn't this is this isn't good. I reject this. This is too hard. <laughs> when do I get to become the guy in those paintings of the Red Army in the Winter Palace? Exactly. Yeah. And it's exactly. like, buddy, you could spend your whole life laying the groundwork for that and never fucking see it. Plenty of people have. 
And it's, it's still worth doing. Yeah, it's true. If you're a good person, if you're a piece of shit, then you might just be like, what if I just did the opposite of this work and tried to destroy people's lives? That would probably be easier paved.